Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, we are talking about something that was actually really hard for me to accept when I very first transitioned out of my high demand religion. It was something that I had spiritual people talk to me about. And I think because it was linked to spirituality and because I had been so wounded but my experience with religion and spirituality was tied to that for me. I was really opposed to anything that felt spiritual for a good, I don't know, year or two after leaving my church. And over the past couple of years, I've opened myself up and become a little bit more open-minded. I'm still wary around spiritual things, but I understand that there is a part of me that is a spiritual being there is some sort of essence, some sort of energy that I need to take care of that's inside of me. I still don't have all of the answers. I don't know what that energy or essence is. And you guys are well aware, I'm still trying to figure out the whole, do I believe in God or do I not believe in God sort of question. I don't know yet. And I'm kind of okay with not knowing because I find that there's a lot of freedom in the uncertainty. Today, we're going to be talking about mindfulness. Now, before I get started, I want to let you guys know, last week I told you about a perfectionism course that I created, and it is free on my website. And I had a few little bugs with that. There were a couple of little glitches. Welcome to doing something new, right? That's what happens is sometimes you try something, and sometimes there's little glitches, and you learn from them. So I think we have ironed out all of the glitches now. So if you tried to download that perfectionism course last week and it did not work for you, or if you got the newsletter, you guys, if you're not on the newsletter, you're going to hear everything new that's coming up and get all of the updates. Um, If you got that newsletter and you went and you clicked the link and it didn't work, go and try it again. So go to emancipatedcoaching.com and make sure you click on that link because I really want you guys to have this course. It is all of my best tools, the most powerful, potent tools that I have to heal perfectionism. So it is some of the very best of the best things that I still use in my life. Because remember, perfectionism is a pattern that we create whenever we're little kids, and we can still reach for that anytime we're uncertain or anytime we're feeling a little insecure. And so if you find that you struggle with perfectionism or it's a pattern that you have to cope with feelings of insecurity or uncertainty, go over there. You're in great company and um, go snag that free course. Also, I have another exciting announcement and I told you guys this week I would have another exciting announcement and I am so excited to announce that I have released my self-led program called Reclaim Your Identity. And that is now available as well. So you can go to my website, emancipatedcoaching.com and go to how to work with me. There's on the right-hand side, there's a tab and it says, you know, work with me or coaching. I think it says coaching. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it says. So it says coaching and you go and you click on that and click on group programs. I have tried to make it as financially accessible as possible so that we can get this information into people's hands as soon as possible. I understand that almost all of us go through a time of wondering who we are, 
trying to figure out what we value, what is our purpose now, what do I want out of life, what do I believe now, how do I feel through these heavy emotions, how do I figure out who I am at my core, and how do I hear that inner knowing, particularly if you have been raised in high-demand religion, this can be a huge question. I waded through this largely on my own. Luckily, I'm married to a marriage and family therapist, but he was going through this at the same time, and we were lucky enough to know other therapists who had left high-demand religion as well, so we all kind of mucked through this at the same time and were able to kind of help each other along. As we went from that experience into creating community for ourselves with other people who had left high-demand religion, particularly Mormonism, we were getting together with a bunch of ex-Mormons, and we were noticing that people were going through the same experience, but they didn't have that therapist community, I guess, that was helping them through this, which is why I became a coach in the first place. And it's why I created this group program. So I ran this Reclaim Your Identity group as a group program last year. Lots of great feedback from all of the people that participated in those groups. And so this is all of the best insight from those groups. And there is also a Facebook recovery group where you can actually get weekly coaching. So I'm like beyond excited about it. You guys, I could go on and on and on about it, but I really want to get to this topic about mindfulness. So if that sounds appealing to you, I know that the episode on how to reclaim your identity, which was our very first episode on this podcast, has been the most popular episode. I think at this point, that episode has something like 280 views. And so this is obviously something most of us go through. It's a problem that most of us face, and it's something that we need support with. And so I know that sometimes getting therapy or coaching, especially in that one-to-one area where you know, you're paying over $100 per hour, sometimes $200 per hour in order to get that help isn't accessible for everyone. So this is a five-week course and it is priced at $333. And you can pay it all at once if you want, but there's no penalty to pay it over three payments or six payments. So that is an option to make it as accessible as possible for as many people as need it because I want you all to have that first step. I want you all to know who you are, know how to feel through your feelings, know how to access that inner compass, and know how to move forward in life. Okay, I'm going to quit talking your ear off about that, but in the next few podcasts, like I'm going to be talking even more about this because I really am so excited, and this is an evergreen course, so it will be there I'm guessing for as long as I'm a coach and I plan to be a coach for the rest of my life. So I'm just going to keep improving this course, making it better, and you have lifetime access to it as well as lifetime access to the Facebook group as long as Facebook groups are around and I don't see those going anywhere, you know, anytime soon. So yeah. Okay. I'm going to get off my soapbox because really I am so excited about this and I know how life-changing it is. But we have a topic about mindfulness that we need to get down to the nitty-gritty of, and it is, it's so juicy. There's so much to talk about. I have (laughs) so many pages of notes that I sorted through for this podcast. I've been listening to neuroscientists, doctors, therapists that deal with PTSD, therapists that deal with depression, and there, it, there's so much research. I have waded through papers from Harvard, from Stanford, from um, the University of Michigan. I mean, there are so many research papers where they have studied mindfulness. So for those of you who are worried, when I say mindfulness, that we're going to be talking about some sort of like woo-woo, new age stuff. Yes, there are new age woo-woo people that use mindfulness um, as sort of a spirituality practice. And I think that's how it got started. But what we are talking about today is just practical, scientific, how to help yourself get what you want out of life type of stuff, okay? So what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is actually just the ability to be fully present right here in this moment. 
Mindfulness is the ability to focus in on the present, to not be living in the past and ruminating on what happened and how it should have been, but we're not also worrying about the future and how it's going to turn out. We're bringing our focus right here to the present. It's the ability to notice your emotions, your thoughts, your physical sensations without judgment. And this is so vital and key to being able to get in touch with that inner knowing, with that compass that I keep talking about. I'm sure you guys at this point are like, she just keeps talking about this over and over again. It's because it's so integral to the healing process. Being able to get in touch with and feel comfortable with noticing and acknowledging your emotions and your thoughts and your physical sensations is all part of getting reacquainted with yourself, hearing what you need, what would feel good, what you want, what you believe. All of that is so important to being able to have a clear sense of direction, as well as being able to course correct, as well as being able to shed the old beliefs that often keep us stuck in the past. So important and mindfulness helps with that a lot. And it also helps with the ability to observe thoughts or emotions without interacting with those thoughts or emotions. One of the big things that I love, there's a saying that says, you are not your thoughts, you are not your emotions. And I would add, you are not your trauma. We are not our thoughts, we are not our emotions, and we are not our trauma. These are things we get to observe. Emotions and thoughts are something that we experience, but they aren't who we are. So when we have a thought or when we have an emotion come up, we can observe it and just get curious with it and non-judgmental with it because it isn't the essence of who we are. We're just the being that gets to experience it. I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a in just a bit. It can be a little confusing. So if you're kind of like, ah, I don't know where we're going with this, hang in there. We're going to kind of tackle this from several different directions. And hopefully by the end, mindfulness will make a lot more concrete sense to you and you'll know exactly how to implement it in your life. Okay, before we get going on the benefits of mindfulness, let's talk about what mindfulness is not. When I'm talking about mindfulness... I am not talking about finding God, and I am not talking about transcending reality. Mindfulness has been used in that way in spiritual practices, but we're not talking about a spiritual practice here. We are talking about scientifically proven methods to harness attention in the interest of self-care. So all this is is the ability to harness your attention and be able to direct it where you want it to go so that you can take care of yourself. That's all this is, okay? This is also not toxic positivity. I often see mindfulness connected with toxic positivity. If you don't know what toxic positivity is, go to last week's episode all about it. I often see people say, when you become mindful, then you don't ever have to feel angry. You don't ever have to feel afraid anymore. You get to be this calm, joyful person. This is not about eradicating feelings that are often considered negative. This is about allowing ourselves to experience the full spectrum of human emotion, allowing ourselves to get curious with all of our thoughts, and then giving ourselves that pause in between noticing a thought or a feeling and then acting on that thought or that feeling. It gives us a chance if we want to just let the thought or the feeling pass. So you're still feeling anger sometimes. You're still feeling judgment sometimes. You're still feeling shame, grief, sadness, all of the things, loneliness sometimes. You still are experiencing those things, but those things don't displace you. They don't wash you out to sea, if you will. You're anchored in who you are and you're anchored in the present and you get to simply observe whatever comes into your awareness and decide what you want to do with it. Is this something I want to act on or is it something I want to release? 
All right. So now that we understand what mindfulness is, which is simply being able to bring our awareness here to the present and being able to observe all of our thoughts and feelings and physical sensations without judgment and only with curiosity. And we know that we're not talking about some sort of new age spiritual practice here. We're just talking about scientifically proven ways to harness our attention. Let's talk about the benefits the general benefits of a mindfulness practice and why we're talking about it with regards to religious trauma. So just generally, mindfulness helps relieve anxiety because again, we're not trapped in the past ruminating over what happened and what could have been and what might have been. And we're not feeling anxious about the future and what could be or what should be or if we're doing it right. We're here in the present where we are safe. And where we have the ability to affect whatever is going on. We have no power in the past. That's already come and gone. No matter how much we think about it, we cannot change it. And the future is not here yet. The future is not guaranteed. What's guaranteed is this present moment. And in this present moment, we have all of the power to decide how we experience this present moment. So it really can help relieve anxiety. It also helps relieve stress because again, if we're here in the present, we're empowered and we get to make decisions that help us feel good. We're also more resilient because when we're mindful, it gives us a chance to anchor into the present so that when difficult emotions come, again, we're not destabilized. We're here in the present and emotions can come and then we can release them. They can wash over us, and then they can dissipate. It increases our awareness and our connection with ourself. We can hear what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and what we're craving so that we can care for those things. When we're mindful, we're more in touch with our body, and our body has so much knowing. It allows us to hear the things that we need, the support that we want, the connections that we crave. It also helps us hear when we're angry and we need to set boundaries, when we're sad and we, you know, have a sense of loss. It helps us feel everything that makes us us. And when we are tapped into ourselves, we are tapped into a compass that will guide us throughout our entire life, an individualized compass that will take us exactly where our joy lies. Because remember, there is no one-size-fits-all plan. In religion, that seemed really easy, right? These are the steps you take, and then you'll have eternal joy. When you've deconstructed those religious beliefs, sometimes you may wonder, what do I do for joy now? Where is my happiness? What are the steps to take? Your inner knowing will guide you to those things. Because it's very individual. Some of you listening, joy might look like living in the middle of nowhere in a tiny little house, living a very simple life. And for someone else listening to this, joy might look like a multi-billion dollar business where you are talking on stages and changing people's lives and traveling the world. Our joy is very tailored to who we are individually. Listening to that is what will get us there. And it's only going to come from inside of you. Mindfulness will help you get in touch with that. It increases focus, which obviously the more we practice focusing on the present, the better we're going to get at it. So that makes sense. And when our focus increases, it also increases our productivity because so many of us live distracted lives. And when we can focus better, when we can pay attention to what we're doing, we're much more productive. We can adapt better, which allows us to let go of thoughts. If we're not our thoughts and we're not our emotions, we are simply the person that observes them, then we can adapt better whenever there's failure. We can notice when we feel afraid. We can notice when we feel ashamed or when we feel guilty about something. And we can take that information from those emotions and we can learn from that and then we can move forward. Because we're not attached to those thoughts and we're not attached to those emotions. We fall asleep faster. 
So when you are practiced at being able to hear thoughts and release them, just observe them and release them. If you have that thing I used to have, I have not had this happen in a long, long time, but I used to have my brain just spin out of control at night when I was trying to fall asleep. It's like a hamster was on a wheel and it just started running faster and faster. As I started practicing mindfulness, as I started learning to just observe thoughts and let them go, I just thought of them like clouds. You know how clouds come across the sky and then they dissipate. That's what our thoughts can do too. And any thoughts that were persistent or were trying to give me a message of something I needed to remember or do the next day, I would just write them down on a pad of paper right beside me. And that's how I got through the first bits of practice with mindfulness. But now I've noticed that most of the thoughts that come, they come and I release them even just a couple of minutes of mindfulness practice and you can hit the pillow and go right to sleep. So it's really helpful for those of you who are having a hard time sleeping, which is one of the symptoms of religious trauma syndrome. When we have PTSD or CPTSD, which many of us with religious trauma syndrome, that's what our symptoms look like. Our heads can start spinning at night. It's quiet. We don't have anything to distract us or numb us. So this practice becomes very helpful for releasing those thoughts and helping us to feel safe and empowered so that we can fall asleep. Anger management. It allows us to feel anger, but to slow things down to a point where we can choose how we act on that anger. If you remember in my episode on conflict cycles with my husband, Kevin, we were talking about how the whole key to getting out of the conflict cycle is to be able to slow everything down, right? And so that's what mindfulness is doing is it's allowing us to notice I'm getting sweaty palms, I am clenching my fists, I'm grinding my teeth together, I, you know, I'm getting red in the face, my face feels tingly, my heart is pounding fast. I'm feeling anger because when we're more in touch with our body, we notice when our heart rate goes up. We notice when we're clenching our fists. We notice when we're tense in the shoulders. And we notice, oh my gosh, I'm feeling anger. And it allows us to recognize that the wave of anger is coming and it allows us to take that moment to slow everything down so that we can observe the anger and not get swept up in the current. So we can observe the anger. We can hear what it has to tell us. We can validate what it's saying. Or if nothing else, just accept that it's there for a reason. And once it feels heard and seen, it is so much like a three-year-old toddler that you know when they want your attention and they're like, mom, mom, mom. And if you ignore it or if you like turn your back, they get louder and louder and louder, right? Anger is that way. It gets louder and louder and louder when we're trying not to pay attention or we're trying to stuff it or all of those things or when we're shaming ourselves for feeling it. But if we can just notice, I'm feeling angry. Okay, why am I feeling angry? oh, that's right, this and this happened. Tell me more about that. Okay, it will just calm down and cooperate with you. It gets a lot less loud. And so over time, you're having less of this explosive anger. You're still feeling anger, but it's less explosive because you're listening to it more readily. You are getting curious with it more readily. And so it feels heard and seen. It feels like it gets to deliver its message and then it calms down. When we're able to calm down in this way, just like in that conflict cycle episode that we talked about, when we're able to calm down, we're able to create more connection because we're not attacking and triggering one another. We're not getting into our conflict cycle dance. We're able to drop down to those more tender emotions because we're being mindful and we're able to communicate those. Like that really made me feel unseen or that made me feel lonely. That made me feel like you don't care about me because anger so often is protecting 
those vulnerable feelings. So getting mindful and particularly being able to manage our anger in those conflict cycles, not get rid of anger. That is not what I'm talking about. But being able to hear our anger and have that pause before the reaction allows us to get closer to people. It allows us to communicate our needs, our boundaries, our wishes, our desires more honestly and in a way that people can actually hear us and want to help us, right? Want to connect with us. Also, studies have found that people who practice mindfulness actually experience more happiness. Because when we're present in the moment, we're enjoying what's happening more fully. The more present we are, the more joy we experience. So there are also a lot of health benefits that come whenever we are practicing mindfulness, usually through some form of meditation. When we're practicing mindfulness, there's also a lot of breath work, which puts more oxygen in our body and makes our bodies a healthier place to live. We're also more likely to engage in healthier choices because we can hear the needs of our body. We're not just eating whatever in order to numb emotion. We're eating what our body wants and needs. We're making much more conscious decisions about what we put into our body. We are making much more conscious decisions about how we move our body. We're making much more conscious decisions about sex practices. We're making much more conscious decisions about how we engage with the world and how we care for our bodies and clean our bodies and clothe our bodies. It all leads to healthier experiences in our physical bodies. So let's talk about mindfulness and how it helps us heal trauma. There are so many studies on mindfulness and how it helps depression and PTSD. They've just started studying this in the last 10 years, and it is amazing what they've come up with. What we do know is that trauma changes the brain, but we know it is a reversible neurological change. For a long time, we thought that the brain was static. And so that once we experienced trauma, that was it. We were traumatized for the rest of our lives. And that's just not true. We now know through all of the study on neuroplasticity that we have the ability to rewire our brains. And mindfulness and practicing new beliefs and patterns is the way that we do that. The more mindful we can be about what our old patterns are and what those neurological pathways are, the more power we have to change those beliefs and patterns. And the more we practice those new beliefs and patterns, the more we make a new neural pathway. And as we make that new neural pathway, the old neural pathway dies away. Trauma may always be a part of our history. We can't go back and change the past. Like I said, we can't change the trauma that happened in the past. So trauma is always going to be part of our history. It's not like we can take an eraser and erase it and make that never happen, which I think is what many of us want when we first leave religion. I know I did. I wanted to be like, I wish I could go back and rewrite my history so that I was never Mormon, so that I never experienced this trauma, and then I would live a perfectly happy life when chances are I would have been traumatized by something else. Most people experience some sort of trauma, whether it's big T trauma or little t trauma. Most of us experience some sort of trauma, especially in our childhood. And so regardless of if I was raised Mormon, I was going to have some sort of trauma in my life because I was being raised by traumatized parents who were raised by traumatized parents. They were doing the best that they could and unwittingly passing on trauma to me. They didn't know they were passing on trauma, but that's what happened. And so one way or another, I was going to be here talking about some sort of trauma and chances are I was going to develop my coping patterns of choice, which are perfectionism, people pleasing and overachieving as a way to deal with self-worth issues that came from my trauma. That's just how it was likely going to play out. I can't go back and erase that. But what I do know is that trauma does not have to then inform my future. I can't change the past. But here in the present, with mindfulness and with practice, I get to decide who I am. 
I get to decide how that trauma acts in my life. I get to decide how that future looks. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about neuroplasticity and about the ways our brains change. I'm going to be relying really heavily on Richard Davidson's research here. And he says our brains are either constantly changing and being shaped by the environment around us wittingly or unwittingly. So regardless of if we use mindfulness practices, our brains are being shaped by our environment. And we can either be conscious of the ways that our brains are changing or we can be unconscious of it. And most of us right now are walking around pretty unconscious of things. Even with four years of mindfulness practice, I would say I'm a lot more present than I used to be. I notice myself deep breathing throughout the day. I notice myself being aware of smells, of the way my feet feel on warm pavement, the birds singing in the air. I am much more aware of what's going on and I can be much more present, but I would say I still walk around distracted quite a lot with my body doing one thing and my mind elsewhere. I especially notice this when I'm eating. I can go off into la-la land while I'm eating and not even taste the food, consume a whole meal, and not even really remember eating it. So I'm practicing on that right now. So I want you guys to know I am right here with you working on these things too. I have developed a lot of great practices in my life, but there are still places where I can get distracted, and where my pattern is to zone out. Because that's all this is, is a pattern we've created. It's a neural pathway we've created to zone out and get distracted. And when we're distracted, our brains are being shaped without our knowledge. We're not really paying attention to what's going on in our body or what we're thinking or what we're feeling. He says, but the good news is, is we can take more responsibility for our own brains by transforming our minds through mindfulness. Now, he talks about a couple of challenges. I think there's like three main challenges here that are challenges to our brains just in general society. Like I said, we were all going to experience some sort of trauma, whether we were in high demand religion or not. There's just a special kind of trauma that comes from high demand religion. One of the things he says challenges our brains in today's society is distractibility. They've done studies, you guys. I'm going to nerd out for a minute here. They've done studies and found that the average American spends 47% of their time not paying attention to what they're doing. They had these people sign up to get texts throughout the day. And what they would do is they would text them, like, what are you doing right now? I don't remember. There were like several different questions, but it was like, what are you doing right now? Are you aware of what you're doing right now? Like, were you paying attention and present to what you're doing right now? And what are you feeling? What is your emotional state right now? Like, highly fascinating, you guys. (laughs) The, The research papers are amazing. When we're not paying attention, they found that we're significantly less happy. The study is called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, and they just found that the more distracted we are, the less happy we are, like we talked about earlier in the episode. This can be a special problem for the person who's left high-demand religion, though, because the religious trauma is sometimes so painful that we turn to numbing mechanisms to dull the pain of our loss. In this state of distraction, not only are we less in touch with the wisdom that could help us find solutions to our problems, but we're also significantly less happy, you guys. And this can actually increase our indoctrinated shame responses. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's when that wash of shame comes over us because something that we learned when we were little kids or we were youth reminds us that what we're doing is out of alignment with the things we were taught as kids that we no longer believe, but we get that wash of shame of I'm not living in alignment with what I was taught when I was five, and therefore I am a bad person. That's what it sounds like in my head. It might sound different in your head. But when I'm wearing a tank top, for instance, or like today I was wearing a pair of short shorts, and I was at the grocery store, and I had a wash of shame right there by the oranges, you guys, where I was like, I'm wearing short shorts, and 
this is not okay. I'm out of alignment with what I was taught when I was five and therefore I'm a bad person. But because of mindfulness, I noticed that wash of shame and I was able to be like, whoa, let's slow this down. I'm feeling shame. What's going on? And I was able to hear the thought that was attached to the emotion. I was able to just observe the shame. Okay, I'm feeling shame right now. Why am I feeling shame? What thought is going on in my head that's creating the shame? And I heard, you're wearing short shorts and you are walking pornography, which is something that I was taught, unfortunately, about my body is that it needed to be covered or that people saw me as walking pornography and that I was this like, evil temptation to men. And I was taught this even when I was a little kid. And so I was able to observe the thought. And this is what I did. I was able to think the thought and be like, thank you for that observation. I don't believe that. And I choose to think I get to wear what I want to adorn my body. And I choose these shorts because it is hot outside and it feels good to wear clothing that keeps my body cool and comfortable. As soon as I did that, the shame released. It was like, oh, okay, thank you. You took care of that thought. The thought released, and I was able to go about grocery shopping without feeling like a freaking Jezebel walking through the grocery store. So that's what I'm talking about whenever I say indoctrinated shame responses. It's those messages we were taught when we were little kids, and when we're living out of alignment with those, we feel that wash of shame. Many of us were told that if we left our high-demand religion, we would be miserable, that happiness was only found inside of our high-demand religion. So when we're grieving and we're ashamed and we're afraid, we end up numbing as a way to like dull that response, dull that really uncomfortable feeling. And when I say numb, I think most of us go immediately to like drugs, alcohol, unsafe sex, because that's what was pounded into our heads in high demand religion. But numbing can be anything that we do to escape difficult emotion. We've talked about how perfectionism can be a way to escape difficult emotion. We've talked about how people-pleasing can be a way to escape difficult emotion. But workaholism, shopaholism, scrolling through social media, reading, you know, mindless books, even reading books that are academically stimulating, anything, and I do mean anything, can be used as a numbing mechanism. If you find yourself doing something to escape difficult emotion, that is your numbing mechanism. The distraction helps us for a bit, but ultimately it leaves us feeling even unhappier in the long run because we feel disconnected from ourselves, from others, and from life. Okay, the next challenge to our brains that many of us face in our society is loneliness. So they've done studies and found that 76% of middle-aged Americans report that they have moderate to high levels of loneliness, and that impacts our physical and mental health. Loneliness actually makes us two times more likely to have early mortality rates than obesity. Loneliness is deadly. And anyone listening to this podcast, like, let me just give you a virtual hug right now. Let me reach through your earbuds and hug you because I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to feel like an outcast in your family. I know what it feels like to have people turn their backs on you. I know what it feels like to have people run away from the produce section because you're approaching. People who would have sat by you, put their arms around you, and cried with you if you had experienced any other loss. Some people have described leaving high-demand religion or honestly leaving any religion as social suicide because it is the death of your entire tribe. We might be lucky to keep a few people in our lives, but by and large, we lose an entire community. And on top of that, many of us lose our sense of self as well. I mean, we talked about that with the program at the very beginning. It is such a common experience to lose your sense of self, to lose your personal identity. It can be an incredibly lonely experience specifically because we don't even know what we want from our relationships, because we don't know who we are. We just know we don't want what is currently happening, but we're not sure how to connect. 
What mindfulness does is it allows us to connect first with ourselves, where we can hear what we're looking for in our relationships. We can better hear our boundaries. We can better regulate our emotions. We can hear more empathy and kindness for ourselves and others in our thoughts. And in that space, we can create more honest and accepting relationships with ourselves and others. And then the last challenge to our brains in today's society is negative self-talk and depression. Now, depression is on the rise, but we can train our mind to change these negative messages in our minds simply by allowing ourselves to check in with ourselves, hear what we're thinking, feel what we're feeling. There is so much wisdom in those messages And when we are more aware of those negative self-talk messages, then we're more empowered to change those messages. I've talked about this before. I believe it was episode two, feeling your feelings. And I think episode three was like limiting beliefs or something like that. And we talk about this process that many of us feel feelings first. If you're a person who is very emotional, You likely feel your feelings first. You're more aware of what's going on in your physical body. Pay attention to that. If we can get mindful with our emotions, our emotions will lead us to the thoughts that are creating those emotions. And from there, once we become aware of our thoughts, then we have the opportunity to challenge them and practice changing them. You guys all know, 11 years ago, I was diagnosed with clinical depression When I started learning how to tap into my emotions and my thoughts, I was astounded by how many negative thoughts I was thinking. I was not aware of probably 98% of them. I wasn't aware that I was telling myself I was ugly when I looked in the mirror. I wasn't aware that I was telling myself I was a terrible mother or that people didn't want to be friends with me. I wasn't aware that I was berating myself when I would make mistakes. It just was happening. And I was living a distracted life. I just wasn't aware. But the more mindful and aware I became, the more empowered I became to change those things. Because I could actually hear the thought. And when I could actually hear them, I could challenge them. I could change them. I could become an advocate for myself. And I could say, hey, you don't get to talk to me like that. I care about this girl. You don't get to say those things to her. This is what's the truth instead. And the more I practiced that, the more I believed it. It's so important to be able to hear the negative self-talk so that we can challenge it. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll try to do positive affirmations without becoming aware of the negative self-talk, and it doesn't work. We have to be able to hear those negative thoughts in order to be able to challenge them and then move forward. And that, if you need some help with that, please go listen to Limiting Beliefs. I believe it's episode three. Go listen to that episode because it goes through the whole process of locating those beliefs and then changing those thoughts. Okay, so Richard Davidson, we're going back to his research. He talks about four pillars of a healthy mind, and we're going to talk about this with mindfulness. So the first pillar is awareness, and awareness is just the capacity to focus our attention and to resist distraction. And then he talks about something really cool called meta-awareness, which is knowing what our minds are doing. Did you know that really what sets us apart as humans is we're the only people, as far as we know, we're the only species that uses our brain to study our brain. And that, I think, is really what meta-awareness is. It's using our mind to become aware of and study our thoughts and what's going on in our mind. And meta-awareness is crucial for real transformation to occur. Just like we said, if we can't hear our thoughts, we can't challenge them and change them. So next is connection. That's the, the second pillar. And connection is harmonious interpersonal relationships. And we kind of talked about that, that when we're mindful, we can access more empathetic and kind feelings towards ourselves, which allows us to then extend more compassionate and kind feelings towards other people. We're more likely to challenge negative thinking about ourselves and other people, which allows us to extend more generous assumptions about others. 
And really, all of this starts simply with ourselves. Noticing what we're thinking, challenging it and changing it, and it just ripples out and extends to other people. The third pillar is insight. So we get insight into our narrative that we have about ourselves. When we have negative narratives about ourselves, we're likely to become depressed, just like what I was talking about with my clinical depression. I had all of these stories about who I was and who I should be and how people viewed me. And our narratives are created simply from a string of thoughts. So when we become aware of the narrative and the thoughts that create the narrative, we see it for what it is and we can begin to change it and create healthy thoughts. And then the fourth pillar is a sense of purpose. The idea that we know the direction of our lives. And I really want you to understand, for those of you still seeking an identity after high-demand religion or after any kind of trauma, because we have people listening to this podcast that experience all different kinds of trauma, mindfulness allows you to get to know yourself better. It allows you to hear your thoughts, your feelings, and those tell you about your values, your desires, your beliefs, your wants, your needs, all of it. Everything you need to know about yourself to live a happy, successful, fulfilling life is going to come from you being able to sit with all of your emotions and hear them out and all of your thoughts and hear them out. They're going to give you important and valuable pieces of information about yourself that you need to know to navigate life. All right, now we know all the benefits. We know how our minds work. We know how mindfulness works. Let's talk about how to train your mind. And this gets really exciting because there's two different kinds of learning. There's a kind of learning that's happening right here on the podcast, which is called declarative learning. This is what happens when you read books, when you go to college, when you are listening to self-help podcasts, when you are watching YouTube videos. Declarative learning is just learning information about things. And we all need this. We need new ideas. We can't practice something new without knowing about it first. We need language to wrap around it. We need to understand what's going on. We need to know that there's a new way. We need to know that there are possibilities out there. All of that comes from declarative learning. But in order to actually rewire our brains... We need procedural learning. And procedural learning, boiled down to one word, is practice. We have to take what we've learned and start practicing it. You guys can listen to this podcast all day long, and it will not change your life unless you put these things into practice. When we start acting on those things and practicing them, then we change our neural pathways. So we can learn all day long, but we're going to keep the same neural pathways. It's when we start doing something different, when we start approaching life in a different way, when we start doing a new pattern or reacting in a different way, our neural pathways slowly change. And remember, as we travel the new neural pathway more and more, that old pathway weakens and eventually dies. Now, Most people, when they're practicing mindfulness, are going to do it through meditation. And there are all different kinds of meditation out there. For those of you who have ADHD, I do not know if I have ADHD, but I do know that it is very difficult or was very difficult for me to quiet my mind. It still can be very, very difficult. And I often bounce between activities, which made it very difficult to be productive, I've not been diagnosed, but I've often wondered if perhaps I have adult onset ADHD. And I know that this can be daunting if you have attention problems. So we're going to go over different kinds of mindfulness and meditation. And there are practices for everyone, even people with attention problems. I promise. Because if I can do this, you can do this. I promise. 
The most mainstream meditation is what you guys all think of. It's where you get in your quiet, comfortable place and you just focus on your breathing. The idea is just to bring your awareness to the present, to your breath going in and the breath going out. And the idea here isn't to not have any thoughts. That's what I thought at first. I was like, I'm not supposed to think anything. And then inevitably, I would think something, and then I'd shame myself, and then that would not make it go very well, and then I'd quit, and then I'd shame myself for quitting. You guys, I am a piece of work. We'll put it that way. Don't do that to yourself. Learn from my example. Learn from my own mistakes, and just allow yourself to breathe. And when thoughts come, because they will, simply notice them, observe them, and release them. That's it. So the goal here is not to empty your mind, okay? That is not the goal here. The goal here is to be able to focus your attention on your breathing. And when your mind inevitably has a thought to be able to observe the thought, and I imagine releasing it like a balloon and watching it float up into the sky, and then I bring my focus back to the breathing. When I first started this practice, I had so many thoughts. I was releasing balloons left and right. Once I quit shaming myself. (laughs) Once I quit beating myself up for having thoughts at all, then I noticed I was releasing a lot of thoughts. But as I practice, and remember you guys, practice is what creates a new neural pathway. It's what creates a new pattern. As I practiced, I had fewer thoughts trying to bombard that empty space in my head. Give yourself time. Give yourself permission to be a beginner, okay? You're not going to be perfect at this ever. The goal isn't perfection anyway. The goal is simply to get much more comfortable focusing your attention and much more comfortable releasing thoughts without acting on them. It's just learning to notice them and release them. Because remember, this gives you the ability to make that choice when you have a thought that isn't serving you. To get curious with it and release it. To just be like, oh, well, that's an interesting thought. Thank you for that input. I'm not going with that. Just like my moment today amidst the oranges with my short shorts on. I had an opportunity to observe my thought and release it in favor of a thought that was more supportive. It was trying to protect me. It was trying to keep me in line. It was trying to keep me from shame by shaming myself. I noticed it. I thanked it. I released it. And I was able to move on and we're talking about all of this happened in a matter of a few seconds. That's what we're aiming for is just being able to notice thoughts and release them. Now, if you have a very active mind and if it's very difficult for you to sit and just pay attention to your breath, if your brain cannot focus and I have days still where my brain cannot focus, I have a morning meditation practice and a night meditation practice. And often in the morning, my brain is so active and I'm so excited to get started on things that I can't sit still. At nighttime, I'm much more likely to be able to sit still and focus on breathing. But in the morning, I'm just ready to go. And so I find that it's a lot easier for me if I have something to focus on. I have clients that will focus on a candle, for instance, and watching the flame flicker. Or I have people who like to do things that are even more active. You are allowed to meditate in a way that keeps your body busy so that your mind can do the meditation. You can do this when you're washing dishes, making yourself present and focused while you're washing dishes. This is also really helpful, you guys, if meditation brings up trauma for you. So if you have flashbacks, particularly when you're meditating, or if you feel really unsafe when you're meditating, first of all, make sure you're in a safe place, okay? If you are deconstructing high-demand religion, or if you experience trauma and you are in a place that feels unsafe anyway, this is not the time to meditate, okay? 
Meditation requires vulnerability. It requires allowing your defenses to let go and to move inside your body. If you are not feeling safe physically or emotionally, it is not a good time to meditate, okay? For the first couple of years, I didn't feel safe meditating anytime I was around my family because it just reminded me too much of my religious history. And often there was just misunderstanding and judgment simply because of their own indoctrination and their own trauma. I didn't feel safe getting vulnerable in that space. So I would either get in my car and go on a drive and meditate in my car because that felt safer, or I would journal. That might sound a little dramatic, but that was what I was experiencing. I was on high alert and I felt like I had to protect myself. Even though these people loved me, I didn't feel safe around them. And so I had all of my defenses up and it was not a great place to meditate. Be aware of if you feel safe to meditate and only meditate in safe places. But doing dishes, peeling potatoes, knitting, running, driving, Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Painting, you guys. Some of my favorite meditation and mindfulness time happens when I'm painting my house or painting art, especially painting the wall, you guys, because it's mindless work. You're not having to worry about what you're creating. It's all the same color. Just that practice of being aware of putting the color on the wall allows my mind to really focus in. And remember Give yourself permission to be a beginner. Find what works for you. Discard what doesn't work for you. Be willing to try things on. There's no judgment here, just curiosity. And remember, you are not your thoughts or emotions. You are just the observer of your thoughts and emotions. Now, there's two different practices here that I want to talk about before we wrap up. To start the practice, you can either just pay attention to your breath and tune into your emotions and your thoughts in your body, and this is great for reconnecting with your inner self, okay? So I love breath practice simply for reconnecting with my inner self, managing any emotions or thoughts that I might be having that need my attention. I love breath meditation for that. But I find that I love mindfulness practice on a specific topic when I'm trying to problem solve an area of my life. In order to do this, in order to have a mindfulness practice around like a specific problem or question you have, what you're going to do is before you start your practice, you're going to choose what your awareness is going to be focused on. Is it a specific person? So let's say you're having conflict with a specific person. You can bring your awareness to this specific person, to a question, to a problem, or to a topic. And decide what your intention is. So if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see happen with this person, this question, or this situation? What would the solution be in your head? What would be the happily ever after in this scenario? And then begin your mindfulness practice. And notice what comes up. What emotions come up when you think about this ideal solution? What thoughts come up? What resistance comes up? That is the insight. When you're having your mindfulness practice and you're picturing this ideal outcome, what thoughts come up? Let those inform you. What feelings come up? This is where your limiting beliefs are going to come up. This is where any shame or fear or anger or loneliness or sadness may come up. This is where you get your answers about what needs to change, what the problem actually is. And you'll have ideas about what you feel you want to do about it to get closer to that ideal solution. Simply observe whatever thoughts and feelings come up and get curious with them and just explore them and they will tell you so much information. Oh, you guys, so much good stuff here. I feel like 
the idea of meditation and mindfulness is a really simple idea that is very difficult to put into practice. Give yourself permission to just play with it and practice it. I found that one of the biggest problems when I was first getting started was remembering to do it. I found that it was helpful to have a scheduled time every day to make it part of my routine, which is why I do it morning and night. But when I was first getting started, I also programmed reminders into my phone. And really when I was trying to develop a relationship with myself, I programmed things into my phone throughout the day as well. So kind of like I was talking about that study where these people would get random texts that would say, what are you doing right now? Are you aware of what you're doing? And how do you feel? I would have little reminders set on my phone on a daily basis that would say, check in with your body. And I would just take a moment to drop in and check in with my body because I was so disembodied. I felt so unsafe in my body. I just lived detached from any awareness of what I was feeling and what I was you know, experiencing physically in my body. I was numb. And so having these reminders to check in with myself was so helpful. And you guys can use the practice that I gave you in the last episode of Toxic Positivity that I do with my kids. You can check in with yourself and say, you know, am I experiencing happiness right now? Am I experiencing sadness? Am I experiencing anger? You know, you can go through the emotions if you're having a hard time labeling them and feel which one resonates. Listen to which one your body says, yes, that's what I'm feeling. You'll feel that connection. You'll feel that feeling of, yes, that's it. Set the reminders if you need to. There's no shame in that. Or attach it to something that you do every day so you remember to do it. And like I said, it can be washing dishes. It can be cooking food. It can be painting your house. It can be gardening. It can be doing anything that allows your brain to roam freely that allows your brain to quiet. Earlier, I did tell you guys that keeping your hands busy was great if you had trauma or flashbacks, and I don't think I finished that thought, so I'm going to do that right now. If you do find that you're having flashbacks, having something for your hands to do, an activity for your hands to do when those flashbacks come, because flashbacks are just thoughts. They're very scary thoughts that make you feel like you're reliving the trauma but they're just thoughts and you're safe in this present moment. Whenever flashbacks come up, being able to redirect your focus, like to acknowledge that you're having a thought about the trauma and then redirect your focus to the knitting or to the washing of dishes can help lessen some of the panic and the stress around reliving those nightmares that happen to you. And over time, you'll be able to recognize I'm having a thought about when my trauma happened, but I'm safe in the present and it's not happening to me right now. I'm not reliving it. I'm just thinking about when it happened and it becomes less debilitating over time. I think that's all I wanted to say today. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this. Mindfulness has changed so much for me. It was a practice I was highly resistant to at the beginning, and it has changed so much for me. It has been key to helping me connect with my inner self, helping me connect with others, helping me regulate my emotions. And so it's, I mean, it's an amazing thing to behold. I love that I can simultaneously hold space to feel two conflicting emotions because of mindfulness. I can experience you know, gratitude, and I can experience sorrow for experiences that were both. And trauma often is, right? There's often a gratitude element for things we've learned or gained or the ways our life has changed. And there's a place for sadness or anger. Same with the death of a loved one or the end of a relationship. There may be multiple conflicting emotions and mindfulness allows us to hold space for all of them simultaneously without having to choose one or the other to make it all good or all bad. It allows us to hold space for paradox. 
which is where most of life happens. Most of life is a paradox. And that's where our personal truth lies, is in the paradox. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for all of the discussions that we've been having. Thank you for the ideas for new podcasts. I'm loving that. Thank you for those of you who are sharing the podcast. Please, if this is helpful to you, please share it. Make sure you tag me. If you're sharing it on Instagram or Facebook, make sure you tag me so that you can get more followers. Because I'm going to share it. I'm going to, you know, thank you publicly and you're likely going to get more followers as well. I want to pay that favor forward. Thank you for helping this grow. You guys, we just hit 3,000 downloads this past week. 3,000 downloads. When I started this podcast, I was planning for 5,000 by the end of the year. And I thought that that was maybe a little far-fetched. And here we are, mid-May, 3,000 downloads. We're having an average of about 250 downloads a week, which just blows my mind. And it's all because of you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. You guys have been sharing on Twitter and Instagram, and I've seen a couple of you send people to me on Facebook. Um, You've shared on TikTok. It's blowing my mind. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling me about your experiences. You feed my desire to keep going when you talk with me and tell me how it's affecting you and also what you'd like to hear more of, right? And I appreciate it. I appreciate it more than you know. Like I feel so grateful and so happy and so joyful that I get to take something that was painful and heart-wrenching and difficult and turn it into something so useful and so connecting and so meaningful. Thank you for this opportunity. I adore getting to do this with you. So thank you, and I will see you next week.